Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual roundtable. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. Please note this call may be recorded. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on any connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. I will be standing by if you should need any assistance. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Jim Washer. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, hello, and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer, I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, Trump in Office, Good for the Oil World. Now, back in November, we engaged in some educated guesswork as to what a Trump presidency might hold in store for the energy sector, and we've now got almost a month of Donald Trump in office to reflect on, and what a month it has been. We've had executive orders, we've had controversies, We've had some initiatives that could be very good for the oil and gas industry, domestically and internationally, but others which could be very bad. So to try and make sense of what this could all mean for oil and gas companies over the next four years, I'm joined today by three of my esteemed colleagues. In the US, we have our Deputy Bureau Chief, Emily Meredith, and from our research and advisory team in DC, Ben Cahill. And here in London, I'm joined by the editor of Energy Compass, Jill Janola. Emily, Ben and Jill, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. So, Emily, let's start with you. We heard regularly during the campaign and have heard it repeatedly in recent weeks, America first will be at the heart of Donald Trump's presidency. But does America first really help the domestic oil sector? Great. Thanks, Jim. And uh, thanks, everybody, so much for joining us today. Um, I want to start with the observation that Donald Trump is on really well-trodden political ground here when he talks about pursuing energy independence. Um, that should be familiar to anyone who's paid a bit of attention to U.S. political rhetoric around energy policy in the last few decades. And in fact, Barack Obama used energy independence as um, you know, a jumping-off point for his policies as well. But Trump's policies are obviously a departure from Obama's, to say the least. Um, whereas Obama used energy independence to talk about demand reduction policies, deployment of renewables, these things that would um, that the White House at the time was hoping would address uh, climate change issues. Um, Trump talks instead about unleashing the U.S. oil and gas resources. He talks about doing so partly in order to create jobs, which was a major um, part of his uh, platform during the campaign and continues, continues to be so. Um, practically, what that means most immediately is a shift away from these climate-oriented regulations um, from, from the Obama administration, and those were largely meant to reduce greenhouse gases. Um, under Obama, we saw federal agencies issue rules such as the Clean Power Plan, which sought to reduce carbon emissions from the electricity sector um, by emphasizing renewables and then also uh, other agencies um, seeking to reduce methane emissions from oil and gas facilities, both on public lands and throughout the United States. Uh, rules that were in progress, such as reducing methane emissions at existing oil and gas facilities, something that would have required industry to um, make investments they might not have otherwise done, 
um, we don't expect those to go forward at all. You know, they were in the EPA's docket and they were being worked on, but it's very difficult to see a Trump administration moving forward with anything like that. Um, Trump is also obviously a loud supporter of infrastructure, um, and we've seen that in the last couple of weeks um, with him approving or taking steps towards approving the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines that have become so controversial. Um, and we also hear Trump talking about expanding drilling on public land. More broadly, we're seeing an effort on the part of both Republicans in Congress and to a lesser extent from the White House on tax reform. Congress is taking the lead right now on that. Um, and we also hear talk about throwing out Dodd-Frank related financial regulations. And in fact, we've seen um, sort of the first move on that yesterday um, when the president signed the SEC disclosure rule. Um, and taxes and financial regulations have a big impact on the sector just in different ways from these regulations. Okay. Now, Ben, if we can look at some of the specifics of this America First approach, there's been, there's been substantial discussion already of this question of a border tax adjustment, which some experts have said could be very disruptive for U.S. oil flows. What's your view? Would, would, would a tax like this push up pump prices? How would it affect, affect domestic refiners, for example? Well, first, um, U.S. refiners have, have emphasized over the last month in their comments that they really don't know yet exactly what this border adjustment mechanism is going to look like. Um, but certainly those refiners that are dependent on imported crude uh, do worry that the cost of their feedstock will increase. So in the, the envisioned tax changes would, um, would tax imports uh, of crude and they would make exports of refined products tax-free. So obviously that provides strong incentives for refineries to export as much product as they can. Um, and the policy is presumably designed to reduce crude imports to the United States and incentivize domestic production as much as possible. Uh, but in reality, there's really no way to avoid um, crude imports to the United States. Um, at present, the U.S. imports about 8 million barrels a day of crude and exports um, only about 4.2 million barrels a day in products. So it's really uh, just not possible to balance um, imports and exports in that way. Um, <clears throat> those refineries that can't export refined products will probably have to pass on the higher cost to their customers. So presumably, U.S. pump prices will rise. Uh, and in terms of the effects, the import tax will really hurt the refiners that are dependent on crude imports and that really have no easy substitutes. Um, this includes some companies like Tesoro uh, with West Coast refineries that are dependent on uh, crude imports from Canada. Small refiners in the northeast of the U.S., like PBF Energy, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, will also be hurt by this. Um, those East Coast refiners run a lot of uh, light sweet crude from the United States, but they're also dependent on imports from countries like Canada, Brazil, Angola, and Nigeria. It's a bit of a different story for the Gulf Coast refiners, which have uh, more coking capacity. Uh, those refineries are really optimized to import heavy crude from countries like Venezuela, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and the need to keep running those cokers. So they will be economically disadvantaged by the, the higher feedstock prices. Uh, but at the same time, the Gulf Coast refiners have more options. So companies like Valero, Marathon, and Phillips 66, they have better access to domestically produced crude, um, and they also have a lot of export capacity. Uh, to some extent, they can make reconfigurations as well. So uh, Valero invested a lot of money a couple years ago to process lighter crude, and to some extent, they can switch to lighter feedstock. Um, 
refiners in the, the mid-continent of the United States who were really dependent on Canadian crude, they began building much more coking capacity a couple years ago uh, to process crude from the oil sands in Canada. Um, and they're disadvantaged relative to the Gulf Coast refineries because they just can't export. So one final note, um, if the U.S. actually builds all the pipelines that the Trump team is, is advocating, domestic refiners, especially those on the East Coast, could benefit. Um, that would give them more options. It would give them better access to light, sweet crude from uh, the Bakken, for example. And this could reduce the need for more expensive crude imports. Okay, thanks, Ben. Um, I mean, both you and Emily have mentioned this um, this issue of pipelines. This is one of the areas we've seen very specific steps taken already uh, in Donald Trump's presidency with these executive orders supporting Keystone XL and Dakota Access. There have also been suggestions that these pipelines will have to use U.S. steel, however, which could be pretty bad news for the economics, particularly for Keystone XL. Um, so, Emily, if I can ask you, I mean, how do you think this, this issue is going to play out? Will a Trump presidency help more infrastructure get built? Sure. I mean, so as unsatisfying as it is, you know, I think we're really going to have to see. The Trump administration is doing a lot in its first few weeks to fulfill in some cases, which were, what were quite lofty um, campaign promises. He was very focused on this issue, like I said before, um, on creating manufacturing jobs, and that's clearly what this order is aimed at in supporting U.S. steel. But in the case of this order, you know, it was sort of messaged as a mandate for oil companies, uh, pipe, pipeline companies, to use um, U.S. manufactured steel. In actuality, what the order did was direct the Commerce Department to take a look at how to integrate U.S.-made parts, quote, to the maximum extent possible, and then permitted by law. Those are two really big caveats, and it's, it might not be clear um, until we see uh, what these studies are from the Commerce Department uh, about what the administration thinks they can actually do. Um, there are WTO questions already that have been raised. Obviously, this isn't necessarily great for all companies if you end up having, um, you know, increased costs associated with constructing pipelines. It's a really sort of complicated proposition. Um, more broadly on infrastructure, both Trump and congressional Republicans, like we said before, are and Democrats for that matter, um, are talking about an infrastructure bill. And we're going to have to see what that looks like, whether it's tax incentives for infrastructure, specific projects. You know, it's just, it, it'll take a little bit of time to see, you know, how this is going to actually um, look. Setting that aside, you know, what we will continue to see, I would expect, is a White House that is far less sympathetic to the arguments of um, environmental advocates that use the keep it in the ground messaging. It's very hard to imagine the Trump administration making the kind of call Obama made when he decided to reject the Keystone application, um, in part to send a message ahead of international climate talks. I mean, that's just not the situation we're in today. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that the president isn't the one who approves pipelines in the United States. Um, sometimes there's some federal authority that can complicate things, and that's what we really saw under the Obama administration. But pipelines are subject to state and local level permitting, and environmental advocacy groups know that, they understand that, and I think we should expect to see, you know, continued focus from them on, um, on infrastructure and sort of targeting these means of transporting carbon, you know, intensive oil and gas that they're not comfortable with. Okay, thanks, Emily. That's interesting. Um, okay, if we look at the 
the US upstream now. Um, how much can a Trump administration really do to support more exploration? I mean, this is a sector, of course, that thrived under Barack Obama, despite not having a particularly pro-oil president in the White House, really ultimately a victim of its own success rather than any regulatory or policy roadblocks. So, so Ben, does, it, does the US upstream need or can it get any more help from a Trump presidency? Right. Well, U.S. oil producers are, are in what we've called an age of abundance. Um, it's pretty clear that there are more upstream investment opportunities in the U.S. than the industry can exploit economically right now. Um, and really the challenge for U.S. oil producers is project economics uh, rather than access to opportunities. Um, you know, to make one obvious point, most E&P activity in the U.S. is regulated by the states, not the federal government. Um, and private landowners obviously have very strong incentives, economic incentives to encourage drilling, and this has been one of the big factors behind the, the shale boom in the United States. Uh, the federal government's really only responsible for a secondary role. They control drilling on public lands as well as the outer continental shelf for the offshore areas. Um, I mean, one other note here is that there are already a lot of very important tax incentives in the United States for EMP um, activity. Uh, the tax regime is generally favorable, overall taxation is low, but you also have a lot of very generous deductions for things like intangible drilling costs, uh, and that creates really strong incentives for companies to, to, to reinvest capital. Um, so that's, again, underlying reasons why there's been this huge production boom. Um, of course, Trump's vows to, to cut taxes and, and regulations, they do appeal to, to U.S. independence. Um, any efforts to encourage investment in, in pipeline infrastructure, as we just discussed, uh, would be helpful too. Um, in terms of new opportunities, um, the White House could potentially open up more areas to drilling, especially all the federal lands that are overseen by the Bureau of Land Management. Um, it's important to note here that most of the major shale plays in the U.S. are found on um, private lands, not public lands. But you do hear lobbyists argue that there could be some shale potential in federal lands in states like North Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico. Um, but, you know, even if the federal government opens access to those areas, um, those shale plays, if they are there, are still unproven. So this is really just about opening very long-term options for the industry. Um, in terms of the offshore, it's important to note here that the current five-year leasing plan runs for 2017 to 2022. Um, so the next five-year plan is obviously quite a long way off. Uh, we really won't start the development of that uh, probably until about 2020, um, and the serious program design will, will happen in 2021. Um, in terms of what happened under the Obama administration, um, some important areas were excluded. Uh, the only areas that are included in the current lease sales are, are U.S. Gulf of Mexico and, and one in the Cook Inlet um, in Alaska, but the Buford and the Chukchi Seas in the Arctic and Alaska were excluded from the current five-year plan. Um, also, the Mid-Atlantic area was not included. And the, the whole eastern Gulf of Mexico is, is off-limits right now because of a congressional moratorium. So you could see the Trump administration move towards opening those areas. Uh, but again, this isn't going to have a practical impact until the next five-year leasing plan, which um, is quite a ways off. Um, the last thing that's worth noting here is um, in late December, President Obama put uh, huge areas of the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas uh, indefinitely off limits to oil and gas production. He used something called the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, which is a law from, from the 50s, to put those areas permanently off limits. Um, it appears that there is room for uh, a legal challenge and we're not exactly sure how this is going to develop, but I expect that there will be a challenge um, by some lawmakers to explore whether or not it's possible to reverse that decision. Um, it's possible that, that would require an act of Congress, and Democrats would certainly fight it, but this could turn into a long legal fight. Okay, thanks, Ben. Um, now, we need to think also here about the international arena. So, Jill, 
um, a question for you. I'd like to ask you about some of the key bilateral relationships with the US under Trump, Russia and China. How might the new dynamics of these relationships affect oil markets and the oil industry? Okay, when it, when it comes to Russia, I think the biggest impact is going to be um, what happens to sanctions, U.S. sanctions affecting the Russian deep water, Arctic and shale. Whether these are eased under Trump, who, who has raised this idea repeatedly, um, including in, in exchange for cooperation with Russia on counterterrorism or for nuclear arms cuts. Um, these sanctions are actually up for renewal on March 6th, so we will see um, quite soon what uh, Trump intends to do uh, with these sanctions. Um, obviously, right now, the atmosphere in, in Washington makes um, easing sanctions on Russia very difficult. Republicans and Democrats alike um, are really kind of rallying against some of Trump's pro-Russia uh, meetings. Um, the events this week, we've seen the, the resignation of the National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, over his discussions with the Russia's ambassador to the U.S. To the US about sanctions. Um, that, that only, you know, adds to this kind of um, the difficulties of, of, you know, Trump moving to, towards warmer relations with Russia. Um, so, too, does, do reports that um, Russia has deployed cruise missiles in violation of a 1987 arms control treaty. Um, so the atmosphere is not good and has worsened since Trump took office even a month ago. Um, Congress ahead of that was also preparing legislation that would tighten sanctions on Russia and would require uh, the president to show evidence that Russia had actually taken steps towards implementing the Minsk Accords on Ukraine um, in order to relax sanctions. So that that hasn't advanced, but it's, it's kind of there waiting in the wings if Congress decides that that's a step they need to try to pursue. Um, I think Trump's ideas for easing sanctions, even leaving out the political atmosphere in Washington, were difficult um, in that Russia, the, the idea of cutting arms, cutting nuclear arms, I mean, Russia has a sort of list of conditions of other actions it would like to see in that field, which in turn would make it not acceptable to the U.S. Um, and as far as cooperation on counterterrorism, um, it's not you know it's not clear what that the U.S. needs to give something away to get to cooperate more with Russia. So it's strategically it doesn't necessarily add up. Um, I think probably important to Russia too is what happens what the EU does on sanctions because Russia EU trade is obviously much much larger than U.S. Russia trade is, and those come up for renewal mid year. Um, I think another another area to think about is China um, and U.S.-China relations. What we've seen so far is Trump more or less kind of rowing back um, on some of his earlier positions. He seems to have fallen back into line with the U.S.'s One China policy and has not taken steps to label China a currency manipulator as he promised during the campaign. So we're seeing a less hostile China policy from Trump. Um, that means right now, at least, it looks like the risk of a, of a trade war is on the back burner rather than on the front burner, which has, in terms of oil demand, you know, that's, that's a good sign. Um, higher, you know, higher tariffs um, back and forth between Russia or the U.S. and China. You know, if China's, if China's hit, you know, the rest of Asia which sort of looks to China as, as an economic anchor is also hit, um, and that sort of spins off into 
into oil demand. Um, the other, I suppose, the other sort of positive development we've seen on U.S.-China relations is the South China Sea. Again, we seem to be kind of moving back from confrontation there, um, and obviously an open confrontation in the South China Sea um, in, could impact, you know, an important oil trade route there. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Um, just to stay with you, Jill, uh, the Middle East, the most important oil-producing region in the world, um, and somewhere about which um, Donald Trump has already said and done some pretty incendiary things. He said the U.S. made a mistake in Iraq in not seizing all the oil. He's talked about moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel back to Jerusalem. He's introduced a widely criticized ban on arrivals into the U.S. from seven mainly Muslim countries. Um, how is his presidency going to affect the Middle East? And what is that going to mean for the region's geopolitics and for the region's oil supply? Yeah, thanks, Jim. On, on Iraq, I think, um, and, and really sort of throughout the Middle East, this visa ban, um, it's, it's not something that's necessarily easy for them to sell to, to domestic audiences at home, but most have pretty much kept their heads down. Um, Saudi Arabia has even sort of expressed mildly supportive views of it, um, Iran hasn't really escalated, has chosen not to escalate really in reaction to it. Um, I think what could be more sort of inflammatory in, in the Middle East is there was talk of um, the Trump administration designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist group. And this is, is a group that the, the current government in Turkey sort of has links to that Gulf states like Qatar strongly support um, and which Egypt is uh, the government of um, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is, is in a battle with in Egypt. So that could have, um, that could have had a, a very um, sort of inflammatory effect on the Middle East and exacerbated conflict in Egypt. And they have, it was rumored, it was perhaps because the visa ban rollout was, was extremely fraught that they're sitting on that and it may or may not go somewhere. Um, in the meantime, what we've seen, which is surprising perhaps, is that U.S.-Saudi relations um, appear to be quite strong under Trump. And I, I think the Saudis were looking forward to working with the Republican president again, and I think relations with Obama had, had become a bit fraught. But given the Trump administration's sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric and this declared war on radical Islam, it's somewhat surprising to find that the two are sort of lining up so strongly with even the Saudi uh, Crown Prince getting getting a sort of award from the CIA on counterterrorism efforts, and the Saudi Foreign Minister saying that the two see eye to eye on the situation. I mean, across the Middle East, in Lebanon, um, Iraq, Syria, Libya, um, and also highlighting the danger that Iran poses to the region. And for the Saudis, this is sort of music to their ears to hear this from the U.S. administration that Iran is the main problem. But I think the risk is that. Right now, the, the U.S. is targeting Iran. Iran is a very easy target. Um, what we don't know is how this sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric and the, the sort of war against radical Islam, how that's going to play out and whether it might drag in Saudi Arabia as a target. Um, right now, Iran seems to be absorbing the blame for the radical sort of Sunni Islam that the region is experiencing, which doesn't quite add up. Um, add to this, Saudi Arabia is right now going through its own transformation, trying to completely overhaul its economy, make it less dependent on oil, and this involves you know, a lot of social change 
as well within Saudi Arabia. So it's perhaps at a particularly vulnerable time that it potentially faces um, having to kind of react or deal with or come up with an answer to the sort of anti-Islam or anti-Muslim positions um, taken by whether Trump or his some of his key advisors. And that, um, you know, potentially adds to some of the other, you know, destabilizing risks that Saudi Arabia faces at the moment. Um, on Israel, obviously Netanyahu and Trump are meeting today. The, the idea of moving embassy has, has gone, the Trump administration has gone very quiet on that. So I think even Israel may have, you know, may be content with that because it does raise, um, you know, it, for, for them it's, it potentially creates a lot of problems. There's been talk of, if you did that, would it spark a third intifada among Palestinians, which is something they don't necessarily need to deal with at the moment. And, and at the same time, I suppose Netanyahu is probably quite content with Trump putting Iran in the spotlight and putting the sort of the Iran nuclear deal also, you know, under a spotlight. Whether that's going to be rolled back, whether they might try to renegotiate it, that's another thing we need to wait and see. Okay, thanks, Jill. Um, I think at this point we should just pause for a moment and see if we have got any questions coming in from our audience. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We will pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay, and um, while we're waiting, Jill, if I can just um, come back to a couple of things you, you said about Iran, which we um, obviously is a, a key issue here for the, for the new administration. So, so what could happen if Trump lets these waivers suspending U.S. sanctions lapse? Does does the nuclear deal effectively collapse? What kind of impact does that have on foreign oil investment, on Iranian oil exports, and also let's not forget on Iran's political direction in light of uh, presidential elections looming in May? Uh, yes, these executive waivers that um, Obama, the Obama administration suspended as part of the Iran nuclear deal, um, they need sort of regular renewing over a set sort of schedule, whether that's 120 days or 180 days. Um, the next executive waiver will come up for renewal by, by May or, or a bit earlier. So this is a sort of focal point to see what the Trump administration does. Do they let it, do they renew it and, and do so quietly, or if they let it lapse that effectively um, reintroduces U.S. nuclear-related sanctions that were suspended as part of the deal. And these sanctions involve um, the U.S. imposing secondary sanctions on, on foreign companies that do business in Iran or use U.S. components in their business with Iran. So what you could see is the U.S., if those waivers start to lapse, the U.S. has to impose sanctions on um, foreign companies that are doing business there, which could include those countries that signed up to the Iran nuclear deal, who are the U.S., U.K., uh, Germany, and um, Russia, and China. Or, sorry, the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Russia, and China. So um, the EU, Russia, and China have all indicated that they are sticking with the deal. They think the deal is working. Iran is meeting its commitments under the agreement. But even though they will stick to the agreement in name, 
if the U.S. effectively walks away from it, the impact on investment in Iran is going to be quite severe. Already you're seeing European companies, including um, Total, you know, pretty much say we are not signing any final deals until after these deadlines for the waivers, until we know what the Trump administration is going to do. Um, reaching out to sort of Russian and Chinese firms, the Russians, even, even though the Russian government says, you know, we disagree with the Trump administration, we support this deal, we don't support any new sanctions, what the companies do is another thing. I mean, already you're seeing um, Rosneft not jump into Iran partly because it's concerned about the U.S. non-nuclear sanctions that remain in place under the deal. So if you add another layer of sanctions, that only puts people off further. China would continue to invest, but China was investing in Iran even under those tighter U.S. sanctions that preceded the nuclear deal. So if, if, in, the, if in the end what Iran gets from the nuclear deal is Chinese investment in the upstream and sort of China and India buying most of its crude, that doesn't really change things. That takes Iran back to where it was before the Iranian nuclear deal. And when it comes to the impact on Iran's sort of domestic political scene, we have elections in May. Um, President Rouhani sold this deal on the back of the economic benefits that you know Iran will win economically from this agreement. If that investment, for the most part, dries up, then that makes his political fortunes um, more difficult. On the other hand, right now there is no obvious sort of rival to um, go up against Rouhani. I mean, however, you know, one thing we we can't do is um, rule out surprises in elections because we have seen that happen a couple of times last year. Um, Very good point. So there's there's no obvious candidate to go up against him, but and we also know that, that we think we know the supreme leader. I mean, he's put his name to this nuclear deal as well. I mean, if if possible, he's interested in kind of staying the course and not completely changing everything up by moving from a sort of more moderate-led presidency to a hardliner-led presidency, which could see Iran take, you know, more aggressive positions in the region and really sort of heat up that Saudi-Iranian rivalry. Okay. Thank you, Jill. Very comprehensive. Um, let's see if we've got any questions from our audience yet. And just a reminder, that is star and one on your touchtone phone to ask a question. Star and one. And we don't have any yet. Um, okay. We have no um, questions at this time. Okay. Ben, if I can just turn back to you. Uh, obviously, Trump's trade and foreign policy is going to have implications uh, closer to home. And um, what I'd like to ask you about is his distaste for multilateral trade deals and his threats to tear these up. Now, if you're Canada or Mexico, historically a big trading partner to the U.S., especially in oil and energy, what are the dangers here and what are the dangers for the U.S.? Thanks, Jim. Um, <clears throat> well, I think the, the White House has definitely shown that trade issues are going to be a top priority. This is something that Trump talked about constantly um, during the campaign, bashing the NAFTA agreement, uh, bashing the U.S. trade deficit with China, talking about um, our manufacturing rena renaissance in the United States. And I do think that this is going to be a key priority moving forward. Um, Trump's policy advisors basically believe that the U.S. is, quote, losing on trade uh, because it has large trade deficits with so many countries. Um, and they also believe the U.S. is losing on trade because other countries are engaging in currency manipulation, 
Um, Trump advisors have talked a lot about China in this regard, but also even the EU countries uh, and Japan. They also argue that other countries have unfair trade practices and that WTO, WTO rules allow cheating, which has given unfair advantage to, to countries like China. So these are basically mercantilist policies. The idea is basically that all trade deficits are bad and trade deficits are a drag on growth. Um, and those assertions are really um, debatable. Um, but I think if you combine that with Trump's image of himself as you know, the consummate dealmaker and negotiator, it does suggest that the U.S. is pretty serious about trying to uh, renegotiate NAFTA and other trade deals. Um, and it also seems like the Trump White House is, is pretty focused on more aggressive policies with all the states that the U.S. has big trade deficits with. So that includes China and Mexico, but also Japan and Germany. Um, and the U.S., the second largest uh, trade partner of the U.S. is, is Canada. Um, I think that the big message here is that really the, the Trump team seems willing to ignore all these long-established rules that govern trade. Um, and Peter Navarro, who's the head of Trump's National Trade Council, he actually argues that this kind of approach is necessary. Um, we have to blow up the consensus on trade in order to um, reduce these structural disadvantages for the U.S. So obviously this has really rattled Mexico and China. Um, those two countries account for about 30% of total trade with the U.S. Um, and Jill mentioned that the, the, the risk of a trade war is, is perhaps receding. Uh, I do think that's true. I mean, some of these positions are bound to moderate from the campaign rhetoric, but, you know, there could be serious economic shockwaves from um, real trade disputes between the U.S. and Mexico and China. Um, there's been a lot of controversy over um, Trump's statements on Mexico and the NAFTA deal. Um, any any attempt to, to, to renegotiate NAFTA could really destabilize all these complex supply chains that, that exist in manufacturing between the U.S. economy, uh, the Mexican economy, and, and Canada as well. Um, if you look at the impact on Mexico, um, merchandise exports account for close to 40% of Mexican GDP, and of those exports, 80% come to the U.S. Um, <clears throat> Mexican exports to the U.S. have climbed by a huge amount since 1993, which is the year before NAFTA was adopted, um, by more than 600%. But this is not a, a one-way street. Um, U.S. companies have also invested really heavily in Mexico, um, just in 2005 alone, close to $100 billion um, of U.S. investment flowed to Mexico. And a lot of that was about building manufacturing plants in northern Mexico. Um, I, I mean, I think the, best, the big message here is that Trump has already set a precedent uh, that the U.S. is willing to step back from the sort of decades-long role that it's always played in promoting trade liberalization um, and playing a, a key role in leadership on global economic policy. Um, this signaled this with abandoning the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, um, and I, I, I expect that we're really just in the early stages of this, and they'll continue to make serious noise about um, looking at NAFTA again and re-examining these trade relationships. So this is going to be an, an ongoing story. Okay, thanks, Ben. Uh, let's check if we've got any more questions, any questions, in fact, from our audience. And we do have a question from Gabriel Dossi from ExxonMobil. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, I would like to ask is, at least from your point of view, do you expect any kind of military confrontation between the U.S. and China or Russia in the short term, uh, what, which uh, would be the impact for the oil industry? Okay, thank you, Gabriel. Uh, let's see if Jill can help with that one. Hi. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the prospect of a military conflict between the U.S. and China certainly um, 
the new Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, in his confirmation hearings, you know, really did seem to um, raise that possibility when he said China should be blocked from access to these, these islands where it's, it's building uh, military infrastructure and military bases. I, I think the reality, I mean, I, I mean, any, anything's possible in this current political climate, but I think that's something that perhaps um, clear heads once you're actually in office and see what's going on could, 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 you know, you could find a way to walk back that from that position. I think China too, um, while it's an emerging military power, it's it in terms it, it's not in its interest to um, pursue that type of conflict. And I think perhaps where it was even even the most fraught was over the one China policy and Trump's. Um, sort of transition stage comments on, um, you know, raising the idea that the U.S. may walk away from the One China policy, which he is, which he has since uh, appears to have reversed on. That is is probably, I think, China breathes a big sign of relief, a sigh of relief over that, because what we were seeing in in the sort of the the communist um, parties, newspapers, and and other sort of state-controlled newspapers, where they tend to sort of float positions before actually making them official, it's a sort of intermediary step, was some very, very strong language from China on, you know, that this would not be tolerated. Um, so we, we have seen an easing back from that. I mean, I think a, a conflict in the South China Sea would would, um, would certainly raise issues um, for oil trade flows. And the other area to watch, perhaps, is um, off of Yemen where the, Trump um, took a decision to send the U.S. destroyer, the USS Cole, um, there after this announcement on Iran, which they also linked to um, the actions by the Houthi rebels in Yemen firing at a Saudi um, frigate. They sort of almost directly blamed Iran for that action and then sent a destroyer there. And I think there have been a lot of cases of you know, warships, sailors kind of slightly crossing territorial, territorial waters, which are difficult to, to always kind of map correctly, uh, Iran seizing people and, or sort of pot shots fired. And I think that's where things could quickly escalate, given the Trump administration's um, focus on Iran night right now and sort of making Iran the bad actor. Um, so those are, those are, I think, two dangerous areas, and they both obviously involve, um, you know, oil trade routes. And this is Emily. Can I just add, um, you know, I, I don't think we necessarily need to see a hot war um, with U.S. and Russia in order for things to start to affect the oil industry. I mean, Jill mentioned earlier this legislation from um, U.S. lawmakers, a bipartisan group of senators, that would seek to really constrain Trump if he were interested in easing sanctions. You know, what that legislation also did was propose tougher sanctions, isolating um, companies both in the U.S. and international companies from um, the U.S. banking system if they invested in, um, I think it's $20 million of combined investments in Russia. I mean, so, so that is you know, much tighter than the current sanctions um, that the U.S. and EU have. And, and again, like Jill said, that hasn't moved out of committee, but what I think, I think that's a signal from the lawmakers that if they continue to be frustrated with um, Trump's sort of posturing towards Russia, they're prepared to do things that are, that are much, you know, t 
tougher than um, what's in place. Now, are you going to get two-thirds of lawmakers to go along with that? You know, maybe not this early in Trump's administration. I would imagine Republican lawmakers want to give him a little bit more space before really going head-to-head with him. But, you know, if we were to continue to have this level of consternation over the U.S. positioning towards Russia, you know, you can imagine uh, sort of a situation where the oil industry is affected by these geopolitical movements, even if there's not um, armed conflict. Okay, Gabrielle, was that helpful, those answers from uh, Emily and Jill? Yes, thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, We're running out of time, but we've had one other question in via email, so let's just try and deal with this. I'm not sure who it's from, I'm afraid. But the basic um, question is this. We have in Donald Trump a president who is um, very pro-fossil fuels. We have at the same time in America a very active and increasingly well-organized environmental movement, keep it in the ground, etc., the protests against some of these pipelines. How is this going to play out? So maybe this is a question for you, Emily. Um, I'm sorry, Jim. Can you say the last sorry, part? Sorry, yes, let me re- repeat that. It basically comes down to the sort of the, the environmental, the, the, the kind of conflict we could get here between a very pro-fossil fuels uh, president in Donald Trump and an environmental movement that is very active, you know, um, and well organized at the moment. So they have been successful. Obviously, they had a sort of, um, you know, their guy, if you like, in in the White House over the last eight years. They had a more environmentally minded president. But, you know, they've been well organized. They've mobilized resistance to various pipeline uh, proposals. They've been quite active as well with some of the protests against fracking. So how is this going to play out uh, over the next four years? Uh, Are we going to see... Um, you know, Trump sort of prevail, you know, in his support for the fossil fuel sector, or is his victory and, you know, arrival in the White House, is that simply going to sort of motivate the environmental movement to dig in their heels even more firmly to get more organized and become even more effective if they can? Sure. I mean, I think both are possible, right? Trump can put forward these positions. The environmentalists can dig in. Um if, if that's the case, this is really going to be a question for courts, and you're just going to see a lot of litigation. And that's going to um, take time to sort out, right? And it's also going to be expensive, both for the environmental groups and, um, and for industry. And so, you know, it, it's sort of an unsatisfying answer, right? But, uh, but I think that, that you're really going to see, you know, a shift to local permitting, Right on the on the part of the environmental groups, um, and then you're going to see a shift to litigation. And you know the other thing with that, it's not like they can fight all pipelines, right? But there is this sort of strange risk where you don't know if your pipeline is going to be the thing that ends up being the cause that environmental groups rally around. Um, and that that should be you know something that's on the radar of everybody in industry who's thinking about you know, how they get oil from point A to point B. Um, so that's, I guess, if that helps. Um. No, it does. That's a good point. Um, okay. Well, I think with that we are almost out of time. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you to everyone who's listened in and asked questions, and, of course, to thank Emily, Ben, and Jill for their thoughtful answers. Our next virtual roundtable will take place next month, so please check our website, www.energyintel.com, for details of the topic and participants, which will be posted online shortly. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in March.